right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our church again. I just wanted to reiterate some things that Chris mentioned. Uh, if you're visiting today, welcome. We're really glad you're here. And my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we are going to have, um, if you're newer to the church, and a lot of people do visit churches in the fall, so we're careful to try to mention a lot of this stuff in September, and I guess August too, building up to it. But a lot of new stuff going on, especially community groups. But we do have a new to Hiawatha lunch coming up on October 6th, right after second service, that we'd love for you guys to be at. And you can define new however you want. I think Chris mentioned that, but you could be here a year. And like, I'm pretty new, so just come. That's great. I want some food. Uh, it'd be great. We'll be downstairs with a lot of, a lot of food, and uh, we'd love to know if you're coming, so mark that in your card. And we also have, which we didn't announce, the Intro to Hiawatha class, which is like the new to Hiawatha lunch on steroids. It's just a lot more content, a lot more information. Everything about our church pretty much gets out in that class. It's a day class, a Saturday class from 9 to 3, 9 to 3.30. It's gotten longer, I think, over the years, you know. It used to be 9 to 2. Churches, you know, get older, they have more to talk about. But um, that's going to happen on October 19th, I think, is a Saturday. So uh, mark your cards for that, too. We do need to know who's coming to that. But um, I guess you can come last minute, too. It's fine if, that, if your calendar frees up. That's totally fine. But do mark your cards, and we'd love to have you there. It's for membership, but you don't have to be pursuing membership. Take the class. It's a lot of people take it because they just want to know more about our church, what we believe, what we're passionate about, what our vision is, where we're headed in five years, what we're doing right now that's different and then, or just new and fresh and talk about church planning, our beliefs, and our history, and, um, you know, membership, and baptism, I mean, to everything. So our philosophy of ministry, why, why Sunday mornings look like the way that they do. So lots of great stuff, and, and we'd love for you to be a part of that, October 19th. But anyway, we're going to dive right in today in, in our series in the book of Matthew. We have a lot to talk about, so I'm just going to dive right in. Today's passage is Matthew 12, 15 to 21, and we're calling this a smoldering wick he will not quench, which, like Peter said, uh, which is right from Isaiah 42, an Old Testament prophetic passage that Matthew quotes in reference to the ministry of Christ, what he's like, what he's all about here. So if you're brand new to the Bible, uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The Bible's made up of two testaments, an Old Testament and a New Testament. Testament means covenant, essentially. And as we talked about a lot in this series, and we try to really pound this home because a lot of people are here and they're brand new to the Bible, or pretty new in terms of how to read it, how to interpret it. The Old Testament was always intended to give way to the new one. The new ones talked about and anticipated in the Old Covenant. In fact, in the New Testament, the Bible calls the new one the better one because it worked better. It was built on better promises, the book of Hebrews mentions, repeatedly actually throughout that New Testament book. And so what we're doing then a lot of times, and what, what Matthew does, what Jesus does when he quotes the Old Testament is he'll, we're going to do this today too, he'll quote passage, he'll quote a reference or an individual or something, whether it's an explicit or implicit prophecy about himself, an anticipation about himself, and show how Really, all of that was in place to build the story to the cross. It was always about Jesus. He was always plan A. And not just his arrival on earth, but especially his death and resurrection. So we've got to make sure that's the climax. Not, not the manger, not just that he arrived and became, God became man. That's huge. But that really the climax of the book of Matthew here, and really all of the scriptures is the cross. And so Jesus is really at pains. Matthew is at pains to, to demonstrate that and show that. The Old Testament was, played a part in the story but really, it was all about Christ the whole time, and it was building towards the, the surpassing of it, the, the, the abrogation of, of it, in the sense that Jesus fulfilled it. And so today is really, all of today's passage, almost all of it, is a prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, 1-4. And Matthew puts his finger on it here and says he's observing things that Jesus is doing, and the Holy Spirit, of course, is inspiring these words. But he's putting his finger on Jesus and saying, he's the one that fulfills, he's the direct fulfillment. Of, of this passage, and it just tells us about him. So that's what we're going to do today. Let me uh, read it in full to begin. Matthew 12, 15 to 21 is the passage. 
Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage today of Scripture. Thank you for telling us about yourself, about the nature of salvation. And you wrote it here, God, to save the lost and encourage and build up and edify the church. You wrote it for your own glory, God. All of Scripture, all of history is about Jesus. And this small passage today plays one, one part in that. So I pray, God, you'd help us to learn a bit more today how to read the Bible, how it hangs together, but especially just be preached to and, and exhorted and, and that you would be heralded. You have come into the world to fulfill this prophecy and, and to not put smoldering wicks out, not quench them and not break bruised reeds and to bring justice to victory and to bring hope into the world. So God, edify us, encourage, wherever we are spiritually today, be on our minds, encourage us, help us to really pay attention here to the words because the, the words of eternal life are wrapped up in all of this. So pray it all in Christ's name, amen. All right, so what's clear, just a couple of things before we dive into this. What's clear and what's not clear? It's one of those passages where you have some lot, a lot of clear stuff going on right, out, right on face value here, but a lot of things aren't. So what's clear, first of all? He's healing people, he's ordering them not to make him known, and he's fulfilling prophecy. So that's the clear things right off the bat. Remember a couple weeks back, Jesus had a pretty heated, in context here, a pretty heated but super theologically significant exchange with the Jewish religious leaders of the day, called Pharisees, who accused him of, and his disciples, of breaking the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a command in the Old Testament to every seventh day or every Saturday, rest, not work. It was sinful to do that, and God had reasons for that, and it sort of built a little bit, and it was assigned to different festivals throughout Israel's history as well. It, it developed. But uh, in this day, in the first century, the Jewish religious leaders are following Jesus around his disciples, and they're looking at things that he's doing on Sabbath, and they're saying, Sabbath breakers, what, what, what are you thinking, Jesus? They're picking heads of grain, they're eating, they're working, they're harvesting something. And then Jesus also later heals a guy, which they constitute as work. They, they, they blame him for working and breaking and profaning the Sabbath and, and being a lawbreaker and clearly then not the Messiah. And that, actually after that, they plot to kill him. So this is really the point in the story where Jesus begins his procession to the cross because we don't see anything up to this point where it says as clearly, the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus. Here, because of what he said here about himself and, and about the Sabbath and all of that. So remember what he said too. He said, basically we push back on the Pharisees' accusation and he said, I'm not so much breaking the Sabbath as I'm fulfilling it. I'm God. I'm greater than the Sabbath. I wrote the Sabbath. It's okay if I surpass it. It's okay if I don't keep it. I'm better than it. The Sabbath was always intended to give way to me. I am it because I give rest for souls. I give rest in a way that the Sabbath command could never give because it only gave physical rest. And like I said before, it was written into history as a, as a type of prophecy to give way to a greater type of rest from God that only deliverance from sin can give. So that's why back at the end of chapter 11, Jesus says, I, if you're weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Then he says the key phrase, rest for your souls, which the Sabbath could never give. It could only anticipate. But it's interesting that when he's talking about rest here, for Jesus, 
never to quote the Sabbath command. He says, now come to me. Don't go to the Sabbath command. Come to me. I give rest. It's no longer about keeping the Sabbath. We're no longer under a Sabbath command. I am here to surpass it and to rise above it and to be its fulfillment. So he's saying all these things, and he does an awesome job. I can't go back into this today for the sake of time, but uh, quoting some Old Testament passages and narratives that demonstrate that, anticipate how one would come into the world to actually, he uses the word profane, the Sabbath, uh, to rise above it, uh, but to be guiltless because he's the one that, that authored it. And for the disciples as well, to actually be with Christ and to be keeping the Sabbath because they're with the Sabbath in flesh. They're with the rest giver in, in flesh. And so that was all the context of this. Remember that Jesus then, he knows the minds of these Pharisees who are plotting to kill him after all this occurs. He knows this. And in today's passage, he withdraws from the crowds. He heals more people, and he orders them not to make him known. And that's a really big thing, too. We talked about that issue. Theologians call this the messianic secret when Jesus says, don't tell anybody about me. He heals someone miraculously and orders that person, do not say to a soul that I've done this. And they do anyway, which is kind of funny. There's a reason for that. Uh, people just are disobedient. You know, it's one aspect of sinfulness that you just see there is people are not obedient to God. None of us are. And just instantly people just uh, have this <laughs> in the narratives. But anyway, one of the reasons why Jesus does this, a couple of the big ones, is not just to demonstrate his humility and saying, don't make, my, don't make this miracle known, don't make my identity known, or any of that. Not just that, and not just to demonstrate what type of king he would be, but also, we'll get to this much later in the series, also to control the timeline of his own death. Because when he withdraws here and he doesn't spread around his fame and exa his exact identity, and here in Matthew 12, this is when the Pharisees start to plot his death. And so the ball's really starting to roll here now and things are, things are happening. But Jesus is still withdrawing at times to control exactly when and around what circumstances he's going to die for the sake of fulfilling Scripture. For example, it's important that Jesus dies right on the Passover to fulfill Scripture. We'll talk about why that is. Some of you know that, but we'll talk about more about why that is later in the series. But it's important for him to do that. He, he's controlling everything. It's very clear when you read the Passion narrative the suffering narrative of Christ when he goes to trial and all the circumstances surrounding the Last Supper and everything, Judas and how he was able to find him in the garden. I mean, everything. He's controlling everything. It's clear that he wants to die, but on his watch for the sake of displaying power, for the sake of demonstrating these fulfilling certain scriptures by dying on Passover and so forth. It's all on his watch. And so that's happening here too. The withdrawing and the saying, don't spread that is, is a piece to it uh, as well. Again, we'll come back to more of that here later in the story. So, but anyway, that's, that's what's clear. He's withdrawing, he's healing people, the contextual issues with the Sabbath, we talked about that, and he's fulfilling prophecy by ordering them not to make him known, exuding humility, and also what type of king and Messiah he will be. But what's less clear here is how exactly is he fulfilling this prophecy? And what do some of these oracles, these prophetic words and poetic words and oracles mean? How exactly is he bringing these types of things into into the world in his ministry, even right here in the middle portions of, of the Gospel of Matthew. So these are God's words then to Israel several centuries before Christ, but written for him and about him and predicting, again, like I said before, what he would be like. But again, some of these statements are unclear. They require some pretty serious unpacking. So what I want to do today is lump together a few of these uh, prophecies, the pieces of this prophecy and talk about what they mean and how exactly Jesus is fulfilling them. And like everything in Scripture, God wants us to know what he's like and the nature of our sin and the nature of salvation. This is just one beautiful angle on the, as we've said a lot here, the multi-sided diamond that we just like to twist in the light when we preach and worship. 
It's one diamond. Everything's about the gospel, and the gospel's the diamond. Diamond's the gospel. But it's got many sides to it, and this is one prophetic angle on it and one aspect in the book of Matthew that gives us a fresh view. We don't see smoldering wicks and broken reeds anywhere else in the scriptures, so it's just one demonstration of that. So we're going to come back to that. But I have three things today, so we're going to go through here and I'm going to jump around, so if you like to go in order, it's not your day. <laughs> but we're going to jump around here and start uh, towards, the bat, towards the bottom and uh, talk about this one issue first of Jesus being, this relates a little bit to what I talked to before about, and actually it's really great that Peter uh, did that song, the band did that song. It is talking about that when Jesus talks about being gentle and humble and withdrawing and not crying or not quarreling aloud, really it is a picture of his turning of the cheek. It's a picture of him going to the cross without a word. So we'll come back to that here in just a second. But the key verses here to this first aspect of being a gentle, humble, and physician-like Messiah are verses 19 and 20, which again says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. So remember now, one of the ways that Jesus is confronting the world basically a subtitle to a lot of what we're talking about in these middle portions of Matthew. He's, he's confronting the Jews' misperception, really the world's misperception in a lot of ways. Not every Jew necessarily, but no one anticipated the cross in the exact way that it occurred. So every Jew in some manner is reading their Bibles wrong. And they have understandings or, or presuppositions about the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, the Promised One of the Old Testament that would come and recreate the world and undo sin perfectly and, and squelch the enemies of Israel in God's people. They had misunderstandings, maybe partially okay understandings, but in a lot of ways, uh, misunderstandings. And one of the ways that Christ then is confronting this and addressing it, because he knows it, in the gospel accounts is by just being like this and not being a political zealot. Remember, a lot of the Jews were wanting that and expecting that. They're expecting a Messiah to come into the world to take up arms and fight the Romans and to be, in that sense, their king and their deliverer. But he wasn't doing that. He's actually withdrawing from crowds. So he's not just, he gathers crowds because how can he not when he's doing miracles and he's God in flesh? But that happens at times. But a lot of times here, he's intentionally withdrawing from the crowds to quieter places and just to be with his disciples or even by himself or with his core three disciples, James, John, and Peter, or whatever it is. But he withdraws and he orders people not to make him known and he heals people. And he's all about forgiveness of sins as well. Remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about John the Baptist, too, who's in prison, who uh, predicted Christ, who actually pre precipitated, is that the right word? Who basically came right before Jesus' ministry and uh, preached and said, he, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. He's the king. He's the, the prophesied one. But a year later in prison, he has some disillusionment, too. It's like, I'm in prison. Where, where's the war? Where, where's the salvation, Jesus? And he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for someone else? And so even John the Baptist has these, has these questions about him as well. He's just healing people. He's forgiving sins. And he has this strange, quiet humility and gentleness about him that we just didn't think our king, our warrior king, uh, would, would have. Just didn't, just didn't conform to many of their expectations about what he would be about. But Matthew makes it clear here that it did conform to prophecy. And that's what's important to see. Many of the Jews didn't expect this type of Messiah, but Matthew says he points right at Jesus. He points right at Isaiah 42 and says, this connects. God did predict this type of Messiah to come into the world. Remember what it says. A lot of these Jews would have known this passage. Certainly the Pharisees did. A lot of Jews would have heard this in the synagogues repeated because it's a very explicit prophecy. 
about the Christ. And so remember what it says about, about him not quarreling, not crying aloud. And like I said before, remember what, this, remember what this builds the story towards. This is the type of Christ we're seeing now, a withdrawer, a gentle, humble king. But just fast forward a few chapters to the cross, and we know that later here, he's going to, actually, just a couple of chapters back in Isaiah as well, from Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 53, 7, we know that he would go like a sheep to the slaughter, without a word. He would go and be spit on by mockers, by Gentiles, by Romans, by Jews as well. He would turn the other cheek on the cross and ultimately to in that way rule as king, in that way destroy our enemies, in that way give us a home and food and an inheritance in himself. We also see a lot of compassion here too to go back to the passage um, Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12 here about, about not breaking bruised reeds and quenching smoldering wicks. Really what this is, is it's an expression of his compassion. He's a compassionate, gentle king. When Jesus passes by and we, in our sin, are like smoldering wicks right before it dies out, basically what the prophecy pictures here is a Savior walking by and protecting that. Just picture a flame right before it goes out in a candle. Kind of puts his hands around it and starts to tip the candle and fan it back into flame. Or walking by all these reeds that are half broken and bruised and basically dying, he doesn't give it the final blow and just break it. He bandages it. He caresses it. He straightens it back up and splints it and lets it grow back and do a strong read again. That's the type of Savior, and Messiah, that the Old Testament predicts. This is the type of king, the God king, the God man that the Bible predicts. And this is what Matthew's putting his finger on here and saying this is it. This is, the, this is why we're seeing this type of attitude and character in Christ when he is talking to people, but then withdrawing and being such a humble and gentle king as well. It's basically the cross beforehand. This is what he was like on his trial. Without a word, even though he had everything to say to defend himself, without a word, really, like a sheep to the slaughter, like the ultimate sacrifice for sin, he went to the cross. So that's what's being picked up on here with Isaiah 42, but also with an eye to the future uh, in predicting uh, the cross. So this is what he came to do. Actually, it reminded me of John 3.17 as well, which I wanted to read for context here. Different gospel, same idea. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world, I think it's a typo there, uh, might be saved through him. He did not come into the world to, save, uh, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be redeemed, gently restored, saved through him. You see what it says? This is what he's like. He didn't come to condemn or break reeds. He didn't come to condemn or snuff out the wicks. He came to save now. And condemnation's coming, no doubt. Jesus himself says that. It's coming, just not until later in the future. When Jesus was sent the first time to be born in a manger and to grow up and to become God in flesh and to die on a cross for our sins, that is the epitome of salvation, not condemnation. Not like the law, which was a heavy yoke that could never be kept. He's saying, I'm here to die for the darkest corner of your soul. That's how, and a lot of you maybe have flipped this around. Maybe not in your mind, but functionally, Jesus to you is more of a condemner than he is a savior. Either in your minds or dysfunctionally, you live as though that's true. He's watching you live your life, and he's condemning the things that you think and do. Watching from heaven and hoping that you do enough to get back to him on your own strength. That's condemnation. That's damnation, because no one can do it. But what salvation is, is Jesus coming to the world and saying, I'm here, I'm not going to break the, the reed of your soul, I'm going to gently go to the cross without a word, 
and as God, die in your place and in that way save you. This is incredible news. But this is what he's like. This is what the prophecy is. Just give us a small hint of way back, hundreds of years before Christ came. This is what the prophets wrote about, what God inspired them to write down and say. And now here in Matthew, Matthew's saying, he's arrived. Look at what he's like. Savior. And so in this way, he is taking up arms, but just not against the Romans. He's taking up arms against sin. He's taking up arms against death. He's taking up arms against Satan and all the demonic realm. He's taking up arms against darkness and deafness and storms. He's fighting that battle. So he is a warrior king, just not the exact battle that, that many of the Jews expected. And many of us, quite frankly, probably didn't, don't expect even currently today. And so this is what the Bible says to us right here at Hiawatha Church today. This is what he's like. God does not give it to us to determine what he's like on our own, on our own terms. Does not give it, he doesn't, doesn't give that luxury over to us. He says, this is what I am like. I am like the God. If you want to know what he's like, look to the cross. There's no, nothing, under, nothing else under the sun or in all of creation that tells us more about what God is like than the cross. That's where we look. You can't go to the mountains or the ocean or whatever else is your thing in terms of like beautiful golf course. You can't go there and, and ultimately learn about God. You might get a sense for what he's like a little bit, but the Bible is clear. You will not be saved by looking at creation. You will not enter the kingdom of God by learning about God from the sun or the mountains or a beautiful relationship. They can give us a hint, but God, the Bible says you know God through the cross. We know, we know what he's like. We know the nature of salvation, the nature of our sin. And God says, that's me. That's where I love you. That's where I, I display my ultimate power in the universe is by humbling myself to, be, to walk among you in the form of a human being to become like you so that I can die in your place. That's how you know me. This is why we need church and the Bible and Christian community because this is where we understand and gaze at and adore and see these things. We do not get it outside of, the, outside of those things. This is, where we, this is where we get it. So we need that so to, to know God. We might know some things about God, but to really know him, the Bible says we have to go here and understand these things about the character of Christ and the nature of salvation. All right, that's the first thing. This is what he's like. Secondly, going to that last verse, verse 21, the short clause, a short phrase here, he, he brings an end to separation. It's clear the Messiah would do that. But the way he describes it is saying, in his name, the Gentiles, or the non-Jews, some of your translations say the nations, it's the same Greek word actually, uh, but in his name, the Gentiles and all the nations will have hope. Hope. So it's the same thing here. Salvation will go to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ. And biblically, historically, this is huge, extremely significant prophecy that we kind of lose the feel of and the weight of uh, by not being right there in that context and just not having, not having that great epochal shift from the Gentiles and all non-Jews being just separated from God to where they're included. Would have been felt more than any other part of history right there in the first century when the church is being born after the death and resurrection of Christ, but we can lose some of that feel because of our place in history. But anyway, this is the point. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, will have hope in the name of Christ. So why is it such a big deal? Again, they didn't before. They were, we were separated from God. This is exactly what Ephesians 2 says elsewhere in the New Testament on this issue. Look what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Here's the key. Having no hope and without God in the world. 
But here's the great but. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, and here's the means, by the blood of Christ. You see, he's just basically talking about all of biblical history in like three verses. You Gentiles, you were alienated from Israel, alienated from the covenants of promise, God promising to be among Israel and to save in those early days in the Old Testament. You were separated from that, and you had no hope. Then you look at this prophecy in Isaiah 42, which, again, predicted this 100 years before, hundreds of years beforehand, but now in Christ, in Jesus' name, now they will have hope. Things are different because of this man. Things are different because of what he is doing in, in the world. So to really understand this, then, we've got to understand that in Old Testament times, there was, for a time, a strong relationship between everybody being spiritually separated from God and their sin and nationalistic or physical separation from God. So, again, Israel was drawn close for a time as a nation, as a people, but other nations uh, were not for a time. So, Gentiles were separated. This is not the case anymore because those were just shadows of a greater spiritual reality that we are all separated from God in our sin, but that, that, was, it, that was the case for a time in, in the Old Testament. But here's how these things progress. Understanding the Bible through separation. Basically, this is one way to read the whole Bible. Closeness to God in the beginning, widespread separation from God in sin, Israel sort of getting close to God again in the Old Testament, but then in and through Christ and the work of Christ on the cross, all nations being drawn back to God's presence. So if you're brand new to the Bible, that's basically what the Bible says in, in four lines. It's a lot more, but you know, it's basically, that's basically it. And so to expand this in a, more, a slightly more developed manner, Going back to that first line, and way back to the beginning, after God made everything with a word, everything in the universe, he made the earth, everything in the earth, and he made human beings, he made a garden, the Garden of Eden. And he made the first two human beings, Adam first, and then Eve from his rib, and he said, just be with me in the garden. It was just this perfect relationship with God, no sin. They walked, among, they walked with God among his presence in the garden, and they just responded to him and worshiped him and communed with him face to face perfectly. But then a chapter later, after Adam and Eve rebel, they want to become their own gods, so they rebel against God. There's one command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, holding the hand of Satan in the process. Sin enters the world. Everything's cursed. They're cursed especially. And it says at the end of Genesis 3.24, this really significant piece, it says this. After God addresses Adam and Eve and the snake, Satan, it says, God drove out the man and the woman from the garden. And at the east end of the garden, he placed the cherubim, who were angelic beings, to guard the way back to the tree of life. So all of humanity then is separated from God in every way possible. They are kicked out of the garden of God's presence. And God sets up angels to make sure they can't get back to where they dwelt with him before. See what sin did? I mean, that's like the clearest way possible just to say that that's exact. Sin brings death into the world, but on an initial level here, they don't die for hundreds of years after that. But what it did initially is it separated instantly their relationship with God, and it broke their relationship with each other as well because sin entered. Human relationships as well. But in general, they are kicked out of that garden of God's presence. So that's the second thing. The, the third of four things here are when we move ahead in the story, I'm skipping a lot. So we move ahead, we see Israel come into, into the picture. God chooses a nation, and he chooses a nation to begin to reveal to the world, not just to the nation Israel, but to all nations, his plan of redemption for the human race. Uh, and he does that again through a nation, Israel. There's many ways that he does that, but 
part of that early revelation of God saying, I'm going to fix this problem, is by giving Israel a temple. Again, many ways that God shows grace to Israel and to the world, but one of the major ways he does that and begins to draw near is by bringing a temple and and cultic ritual and worship into Israel's worship and into that covenant that he made with them in the Old Testament. So in the early days, it was a tent called the tabernacle when they were in the desert, but later it was brick and mortar, and that's when it became a more permanent uh, temple. But in that, he said, I'm going to dwell inside it, and I want you to encamp around it. So when Israel camped, they actually camped all the way around it, just to signify that God was symbolically dwelling among his people again. And, and separation is beginning to be undone. He's there in the temple. But what it did say, though, at the same time is, come close to me, and I'm going to come close to you, but don't come too close, or you'll die. There is that. So he's saying, I'm among you, my temple's among you, but if you come too close to me, and if you don't keep my laws and keep sacrifice perfectly, uh, death or at least plague or things like that will, will ensue. So through animal sacrifice, you can draw near, but you can't enter that ultimate inner sanctuary where I truly reside or you'll die. So only the priest could do that once a year. We call that the Holy of Holies. But, but here's where it gets especially interesting about, about the temple. And I have a picture here for you visual people. I'm visual. Of what the temple looked like. This is a cross section, of course. It wasn't wide open like that. And I don't have my uh, pointer it's actually a little, probably a little bit hard for you to see. I was wondering if it would be too small, but I'll point out some of these things here. As you can see here, this is the permanent temple, of course. And on the right side here, the altar was outside, and on the inside you see a priest. But that main inner area, uh, all gold, so just beautiful, just fashioned gold and relief sculpture on, on the walls and the lampstands and all of that. Uh, the priest would minister in this holy place on the inside regularly. On the left side, those two lion-like creatures with wings, those are cherubim. And that's, that would have been separated from the rest of the temple by a veil, a curtain. So it can never really be entered. That's where God said in between those two are the, is the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, where his manifest presence dwelt. And God said only the high priest goes in there once a year to atone for the sins of the whole nation. Well, that's it. Otherwise, you die. So that's where, my, that's where my manifest presence is. And otherwise, it was worship happened on the outside of the temple with the commoner and on the inside, this holy place here where the, the, the priesthood in general went to assist uh, the common Israelite in, in worship. But, but look at some of these furnishings. This is the big thing I want to tell you about here, and I put it in a list form on the bottom. There's tons more you can say about the temple, but listen to some of these things that, and you can see it here too, some of it, inside the temple. Uh, right on the right there, there's, t- there's all these lampstands. So really what you'd see right when you walk in on the right are golden trees. The lampstands look like trees with fruit hanging off of their branches. So lots of fruit imagery all over the place. The cherubim I mentioned, not only are there cherubim, on the inside of the Holy of Holies there, but they're everywhere. There are cherubim on the veils. There are cherubim, these angelic beings on the, uh, on the walls and, and, and plastered on these different furnishings in the temple as well. There's precious stones like onyx, and you can see the gold everywhere. Uh, and just in general, this garden-like imagery everywhere. Lilies, open flowers, gourds, fruit, pomegranates, palm branches, just everywhere. So, and then finally on the right side, uh, of course it's not laid out perfectly here <laughs> clearly, but... The temple was to always face east as well. That was very important. God said it's extremely important that the temple always face the direction, the opening of it, the door. Always face east. The tabernacle before did it when it was mobile. They'd always have to set it up that way. Temple when it was built, make sure it it faces east. So when we're reading these things in the Bible, and there are chapters and chapters and chapters in the Old Testament given over to this, 
when we read these things, it can be like, what in the world? Is this really important? Uh, but, but it's in there for a reason. And here's the point. We didn't look at all these things today in Genesis 2 and 3, but all of these things on the bottom and more appear in the Garden of Eden. So I'm hoping you guys picked up on some of that when we just read from Genesis 3.24 and just talked about the Garden of Eden a little bit in general. The tree of life, and that's the a, that's a tree that God said you can eat of this tree, and it has great fruit on it, but you can't eat of any other tree, especially uh, not, actually you can eat of all trees. The tree of life is there, just giving life, but just don't eat of that one tree. But uh, basically when you walk into the temple, it's just a garden-like place. And a lot of us don't realize that, that we just picture brick and mortar, but they would have walked into a golden garden. That's what it would have looked like. Just garden imagery everywhere. And cherubim everywhere uh, around them as they went in, the priests went into, into worship. So, and the east-facingness and the cherubim, again, it goes back to that uh, Genesis 3.24 thing where uh, God said, on the east end of the garden, I'm going to set up these cherubim so that they can't get back in to the garden. So it would have been this east-facing idea that would have, again, hearkened back Israel to this garden-like place. It's basically, the temple then essentially was the Garden of Eden in like another form. In imperfect form, it was the Garden of Eden among, among people. So that's what it was basically saying. So picture that. When a priest would go into the garden, they would enter from the east through cherubim, not able to quite get into that holy of holy place, but all around this beautiful Garden of Eden-like imagery around them, and they would sacrifice, and they would worship, and they would bring Israel basically kind of, sort of, but not fully back into the garden where he dwelt. Isn't that cool? It's like that's what he's doing. So, so basically the temple is saying... Uh, God says to Israel and the world watching, because Israel would watch this happen daily, every single, it's just part of their theological culture. Basically, God is saying, I am working in the world to make a way back to the garden of my own presence. And this is one of the first manifestations of that promise. The garden of Eden, in the form of a temple, is kind of among you. But here's the theological rub. The temple was not the final manifestation of this work, because we know it failed to truly bring people into that inner sanctuary. You couldn't get in. God was like, come close to me, but stay away at the same time. You can't fully get to where I am, even with this Garden of Imagery thing, or Garden of Eden imagery temple that's around you. It's not the final manifestation of that. It did not fully bring the people of God into, into his presence. And we know that's the case because it was only for Israel to experience, not the nations. And God makes it clear, even in the Old Testament, I'm coming to recreate the world. I'm coming to save the world here. In many and various ways, he declares that prophetically. And so we also know from the, for that reason it wasn't the end. So, so it's these types of things then that just drive the story forward. When we see the temple and we see grace, but imperfect, incomplete grace at the same time. God is at work restoring the fallenness at the beginning in Genesis 3. He's going to bring garden existence with God back. And, he, and it's going to happen through sacrifice. Because sacrifice is where the priests in Israel got to draw close to that temple and the priests got to go in. It was by blood. And that's where the Christ imagery starts to really come in here, which I'll get back to here in just a second. Actually, right now. So fast forward here to the, the final piece to this is Christ. And this is what Matthew says. When, this is, this is the, the hyperlink again. When you click on the Gentiles have hope, think biblically. This is what expands into it. They didn't have hope because they couldn't be near. They were banished alienated, separated from God in the commonwealth of Israel. So when, when he says here, the Gentiles have hope again, basically what he's saying is they have hope to get back to where God is. They have hope for the eradication of separation. They have hope for garden existence, to be where he is. That's the essence of salvation, to get back to him. Sin makes separation. Jesus does that. 
And this is what all these things are hinting at in this beautiful imagery and prophetic ways and symbolic ways as the story uh, proceeds throughout the scriptures. So we get to Christ in his name. We have hope. He is, as John 14, 6 says, the way back to God. This is especially key in Matthew 12, two weeks ago's passage. He is the greater temple. There's another reason why I want to mention this. All this stuff today is, is right in context here. Jesus is saying there's a temple in the Old Testament, and I'm a better, I'm a better version of it because I can actually get you to God, whereas a temple before could only just kind of. I'm the, something greater than the Old Testament temple is here. I'm bringing an end to it, and I'm replacing it through the sacrifice of myself. I'm actually, truly, fully, once and for all, in a perfect manner, going to get you back into the garden of his presence. He does that through the sacrifice of himself. Matthew 27, 51, he's the one then who tore that curtain back on that image, that curtain that separated that holy place from the rest of not just the temple but the world. He's the one that tore that at the moment of his death, that barrier of separation between God and the world that remained underneath the old covenant system. And again, Ephesians 2, Gentiles can now draw near, but it's very clear about the means. By the blood of Jesus Christ, that's how we get in. Not law, not a certain philosophy that's apart from that, nothing. No other God, no other, no other way of living. It's by what God has done for us in Christ that we get back. That's the ultimate temple work. That's the ultimate garden restoration, restoring work that God does in, in the world. And so that we, then again, we can just declare and affirm he is the one in whom the nations, the nations have hope. So you see then how robustly, we just did a great, this is like a biblical survey class on, on temple and separation. But you see, and we could talk a lot, we could talk a lot more about it as well. It's a lot more to say. But you see how robustly the Bible just declares, this is the mission of God. This is the problem, and this is the solution. Problem separation, the problem sin, and the restoration, the salvation, the fix, the remedy is Jesus. And in the meantime, he works in a temple kind of way uh, to indicate that this is what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to bring you back to, back to myself and the garden of my grace and my presence. This is, by the way, too, when you're reading these things in the Bible, uh, and I encourage you next time to do this. When, in Exodus and 1 Kings, when you read chapters and chapters and chapters about the furnishings in the temple, and you're just thinking, this is just insanely boring, <laughs> you know, you skip it. Because, yeah, I've skipped it too. Everyone skips those things. But when you read those things, slow down and say, where else in the Bible have I seen these things? And ask, and they should thank Garden of Eden. And also think ahead in the story. What does Jesus call himself? He called himself the greater temple. And what does he do to the temple when he dies? And we should basically ask the question then, how does the Bible itself help us interpret these things? Where else in the story does it pull from and help inform? And when we do that, we just start to understand the nature of Christianity better. It's for the sake of the gospel that we have all of these long chapters on what exactly went into the temple and why God says in paragraphs, it's really important it faces east. Like, what? Come on. Like, yes, because of Genesis 3. It's a very important why it had to happen, because it had to image the Garden of Eden and because God's plans were always bent on that and declaring to the world implicitly and explicitly, I am fixing the problem here. I have come to restore you to, to my presence. Right here, Matthew's pointing at it. This is how the nations have hope. His final temple, his final garden is here. No more cherubim, no more veil, no more sacrifice, just Jesus. He's coming to wrap it all up in, into the head of himself. All right, and third and final then, he brings divine sonship and adoption into history. I'm going to pull from that first verse there in verse 18. 
Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. A couple quick things on this. Now, God here obviously first and foremost is talking about his son, Jesus Christ. And he's saying he's my beloved, he's my chosen one. And my soul is well pleased in him. And he's the one that's going to bring restoration and salvation to the world. But here's the the mind-blowing, this is almost the incomprehensible beauty of the gospel right here and what it affects in us and what it does for us. When we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we inherit sonship on the same level as Jesus's. You guys hear that? When we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, you become a child and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Isn't incredible? Look what it says in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, and here's the key, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. If you are saved, you are actually God's son or daughter. You're a child. Then amazing. This is where the idea of adoption comes in biblically too. We are not, so to speak, then the biological son of God, like, like Christ, you could say, in a sense. Uh, but we are the adopted ones. And the Bible is clear on that. We are adopted when we believe. And we have a lot of adoptive parents here as a part of our church too, which we love. We love having a culture of adoption here. And you guys, if you're one of them, you know this more firsthand than the rest of us. And, and that is when, you're adopt, when you adopt a child, you choose them, right? They don't climb their way into their family or perform uh, to be received. You choose them. You love them. You choose them based on your love for them. That's how adoption happens. And when they become a part of your family, you love them on equal level as your biological children, if you have biological children, on the same level as, as them. We love that culture here because of what it demonstrates about the gospel. There's the Son of God, Jesus, and what he does for us, but he actually, when he saves, he not just washes clean, he does that, but he actually changes our identity and relationship with God from a, from a slave or an outsider or a separated one to actually dining at the table of God itself. And God has affection for us on the same level, too, as, as Christ. Isn't that incredible? It's almost, if the Bible doesn't say this, there's no way we'd say that, right? <laughs> we would never make that conclusion on our own. This is the Bible says this, that we're co-heirs, and that we're actually sons and daughters of God as well uh, through belief. So this is what the gospel says. And I'm going back to this word chosen here as well, speaking about Christ first of all, but I think what this does is it reminds us that we are chosen as well. God is identifying and choosing in the world. Uh, to work and to act and to pour out grace on, on his own terms. It's not by our works. It's not by our performance. It's not by being a good person. God is at work doing absolutely everything in the biblical story. So the gospel says, God is well pleased with us based on his own expression of love for us. So he loves us based on what he does, the cross. That's where his love comes into the world. He really does it. He adopts us by grace through our faith in him. That's it. He ends the banishment from God. He's gentle with us. He doesn't break the bruised reed of our soul, but mends it. So the Bible says elsewhere, you are children of God, Christian. And then he goes on, and that is what you are. It's like the, like the Apostle John, when he's writing his first letter, he's had to say, he digresses. Have you thought about that lately? That you are actually a child of God when you're saved. It's a status change. You're not a hired hand, treated like an employee and given tons of work to do by God. I'm guessing maybe half of you, maybe not that much, but around there, probably think about God in those terms today. Even if you're a believer, you've digressed into that. I'm an employee, I'm a servant, and I've been given tons of work to do, but basically that's my relationship with God. 
and we're still kind of separate, not really on the family level, but he kind of likes me, and we're, just, we're basically on those terms. But that's not what the Bible says. You've moved into an adopted, you're, you're an adopted relationship now with God. You're dining at his table. He thinks of you like a father to a son or daughter on a perfect level. That's what happened at the cross. That's possible now because of the cross. Sin's removed. No more banishment. We're in the garden again. We're back in his presence perfectly through the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do to lose that love either. A lot of you guys just need to hear that today as well because you think that you can. You cannot lose that love like a child can't lose the love of his parent or her parent. So what is today about then? It's just response, right? Now think about this passage again. Look at that sermon insert for a second. I don't have it back on screen, but just look at that thing or think about that passage. What's it about? It's just about response. This is just a passage saying, this is how awesome Jesus is. Respond to it. There's nothing in here. There's no command. There's nothing here about replicating what Jesus is doing. He's simply a Savior walking among smoldering wicks and bruised reeds and saying, follow me to the cross. That's where I'll heal you of your sin. That's where I'll give you hope. It's all on me. I brought the temple into the world in the Old Testament. Israel didn't. I drew near to Israel through it. They didn't draw near to me first. I prophesied about the Christ who would be a better version of it and replace it. No one else predicted it. I came to die in your place and make the dwelling place of God with man again. You didn't manufacture this. I loved you to the uttermost before you loved me. I adopted you, my child, by choice, not by your works, simply because I love you and I plucked you up from sin and death based on what I've done for you. You did nothing to earn it, nothing to perform for it. I've done it all. This is why the Bible says so tirelessly, especially in the Old Testament, I am the Lord and I will do it. It's like you want to make sure we heard over and over again, God does salvation, we don't. I am God, I've spoken, I will do it. So don't cheapen my salvation by thinking for a second that you can add to it. Stop that, he says. I love you. Just receive it from me. I've died in your place. Is there a greater form of love? Never. So I can't show you anymore how much that's the case. I am your spiritual loving father. Come into my family and dine with me. Come back into the garden. I've taken sin far away from you. I've taken the wrath of God. I've taken the debt. I've suffered in your place. I love you. Just rest at my feet and stop performing. You're my child. That's what we're getting here back in Matthew 12. That's what Jesus is bringing and ushering into history by being the chosen one himself, by being the first son who would, who would bring forth many more adopted sons and daughters through his person and work for us on the cross. That's what this is about today. Response, 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 response. Not by performing and being a great person, by being a messed up person who adores him and this and saying, he's taken it away, he's done it, hallelujah. And, and you worship in response, you, you praise God, and you, you go about your day just thinking about him and keeping the law of Christ by just adoring that cross. So let me pray for us and we'll close. God, thanks today for uh, your amazing grace and goodness in Matthew 12. It is truly all on you and all about you. Uh, thank you that this passage makes it very clear uh, by inference, but also just stating clearly that it's on you. In your name, the Gentiles will hope that you are the one passing by the smoldering wicks and not quenching them. You are the one who's not breaking the bruised reeds. You are the one who's doing the choosing. 
You are the one who's loving and being pleased with us, not based on anything we do, based on what you do for us. It's all on you, God. So thank you for being at work in the world, undoing the curse of Genesis 3, undoing our banishment from God. Glory to God forever. Help us to believe in that today. If there are people who don't believe that yet, that's what it means to be a Christian right there, to believe in that concept, to come messy to the cross and say, God, please deal with my banishment. Help me not to fear it anymore. Fear it. I fear it. I fear being eternally banished from you, but in Christ, I don't have to anymore. God, I pray that you build our community up with that truth today uh, in, in all its glory. Help us to respond even now through song and to sing praises about the gospel of grace and what it means. Uh, thank you for adopting us into your family as, as sons, co-heirs with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.